This program is brought to you by Emory University. I wanted to uh, start off by saying that uh, your talk, Professor Shore, made me incredibly nostalgic because as an undergraduate student, I mean, the truth is I'm, I'm a closeted cognitive anthropologist <laughs> slash psychological anthropologist. The courses that I enjoyed most as an undergrad uh, at UC San Diego were psychological and cognitive anthropology. I actually thought that's what all anthropology was. Uh, when I, I moved to the University of Michigan for my PhD, I was a little bit shocked that not all anthropologists were, were excited about experimental uh, methodology. Uh, the reason that I was most excited about cognitive anthropology is that one of the things I think anthropologists are best at is understanding what's most interesting about human behavior. You'd think all social scientists would be good at that, but I think anthropologists are especially good at this. Um, and you asked, you know, why do anthropologists study religion and ritual? And I actually think the answer is very straightforward, because that's most, the most interesting aspect of human behavior, um, or among the most interesting aspects of human behavior. One of the reasons I think psychologists have um, almost completely neglected, I, th I think it's not an overstatement to say that, uh, largely neglected the study of ritual and religion is because um, we love our methods very, very much. We love our, our theoretical perspectives. And although our methods are great at a lot of things, I think they constrain us in a number of ways. Um, and that often what we'll pick to study, we'll choose to study, are topics that, are, that lend themselves to the methods that we have. And the complexity and the richness of ritual and religion don't readily lend themselves to the kind of experimental paradigms that most experimental psychologists use. So uh, I actually wasn't a psychology major as an undergraduate. And I think I've, I have a reputation now as someone who studies terribly unorthodox things like ritual and religion. Uh, and psychology, I guess those are kind of unorthodox. But as I say, it's not an accident. I think that's where a lot of the action is happening. Um, and what I want to talk to you about today is um, a look at how our shared universal cognitive system facilitates our capacity to acquire the cultural conventions uh, and rituals of our communities, um, allows us to use cultural tools, um, affords innovation, all sorts of interesting and unique things about being human. And I take a cognitive developmental perspective. I'm trained as a developmental psychologist. And what you'll see in this talk is, um, is actually a lot of experimental evidence for many of the claims that Professor Shaw made in his talk. So I'm looking forward to, um, to your feedback um, and all of your feedback. So the capacity to imitate others is integral to the development of human cultural learning. And efficient, see, developmental psychologists, we get all the tricks, the cute pictures and the cute clips, so I'm pulling out all the stops today. And efficient cultural learning requires um, really flexible imitation. So we might have a very, very lively discussion about whether this is intraspecies avian imitation here, which probably is not. Uh, but I think we all be in agreement that um, what you find here is imitative behavior. And I think a lot of what motivates imitation is affiliation with uh, trusted kin, um, with members of our social groups. Uh, this actually is a picture of, of me, and this is my mother. I can assure you this is a highly affiliative behavior. Mm -hmm. Who's better to affiliate with than, than mom and dad? 
Now, imitation has primarily been studied, at least in early childhood, as a means of acquiring instrumental skills for manipulating the physical world through a process of social learning. So the vast, there are, there are probably thousands of studies of imitation in early childhood. And almost all of this research is focusing on physical causality and how children learn skills from, uh, from other people. And the, um, as I mentioned, the research on instrumentally motivated imitation examines search for, really for physical causal rationales. And if we're learning instrumental skills, understanding physical causality is really, really useful. Right? It allows you to understand the mechanism, and it allows you to own an instrumental skill in a really useful way. If you understand the physical causal basis for it, you can appropriate it, you can modify it, you can improve upon it, and you can innovate. Right? It's really important for human cultural learning. And instrumentally oriented perspectives on imitation have been used to explain what has been called um, over-imitation. And uh, the interest in over-imitation came from comparative psychology. And in really trying to understand what is special and unique about um, human social learning. So for those of you who haven't heard of, of over-imitation, um, Andrew White calls it over-copying. And what this, uh, the, the, uh, the seminal study was done by Horner and Whiten in 2005. And the, the experimental paradigm was to use puzzle boxes. So keep in mind, this comes from an interest in comparative psychology. So they're comparing the performance of chimpanzees and young children on their um, food retrieval or prize retrieval tasks that involve tool use. So there's a transparent puzzle box. And what, um, what these experimenters did is they modeled actions that were causally relevant to retrieving the reward in this clear puzzle box, as well as actions that were clearly irrelevant to retrieving the reward, things like tapping the stick on top of the box. Uh, chimpanzees, being very reasonable, rational creatures, got rid of all of the causally irrelevant bits. So if you show that you model this behavior for a chimpanzee, they reproduce only what's causally relevant to getting the food reward, which is really what they're all about anyway. Right? You want to motivate a chimpanzee? Food reward. The children, on the other hand, irrationally reproduce absolutely everything, the relevant bits and the irrelevant bits. And this, I think the, um, this particular line of inquiry is fascinating to me for a lot of different reasons. But what was most interesting is that the, um, the study of over-imitation has presumed that children are doing, are reproducing both the causally relevant and irrelevant bits uh, because they assume there must be some deep <coughs> causal explanation for the irrelevant bits, even if they don't already know it. So the researchers who, um, who studied this postulated that maybe there's some kind of automatic causal encoding. Because how else can you explain why human children would reproduce behavior that is clearly causally irrelevant? And the theoretical perspective for a lot of this literature comes out of the naive scientist model of cognitive development that is very rationalist, uh, is based on our understanding of physical causality. And if you have that assumption about human nature, that we are intuitively scientific or kind of proto-scientists, and we have rich capacities for causal learning, how do you explain a human child doing these absurd tapping actions on a box 
clearly irrelevant to retrieving the reward. So the theoretical perspective is constrained here, right? How do we explain this irrational behavior? Their interpretation is really, it must be rational deep down. There must be some attribution of, of causality. Now, someone who uh, was not trained as a psychologist initially, I look at that behavior and I think, this is a ritual. Right? What these experimenters have done is they've modeled a ritual to a young child. They have a model who's competent, who's an expert. This is their task. They're reproducing a bunch of intentional behavior um, that is opaque, much of which is opaque from the perspective of physical causality. And children make the, the inference that this is your ritual. And I'm going to reproduce everything, not because I think there's fundamentally a deep physical causal rationale for it, but because that's the way you do it. Right? This is conventional uh, behavior. There's a huge literature on how precocious our causal reasoning is. And a substantial amount of developmental research has demonstrated that young children understand many general causal principles. They possess remarkably rich causal knowledge. And as I mentioned, a lot of this research comes from the naive scientist model of cognitive development. Um, they've documented that children's um, knowledge is organized into uh, very coherent, evolutionarily privileged, domain-specific um, causal theories of the world around them. We know young children can use causal information to make accurate predictions, engage in effective interventions, and generate really sophisticated causal explanations. Uh, I was actually trained in this um, theoretical perspective at Michigan with people like Henry Wellman and Susan Gellman. There's a lot of, in fact, um, comparative evidence. We used to think that it was our, um, our sophisticated causal reasoning and tool use proclivities that made us special. Turns out, not so special. Even chimpanzees can use tools. These amazing crows can as well. Another puzzle about using causal reasoning to explain much of human behavior is that, in fact, a lot of our behavior has exactly nothing to do with physical causality at all. And the naive scientist's perspective on, um, on cognitive development has very, very little to say about how we acquire the cultural conventions and rituals of our communities. So rather than... Um, <laughs> Fantastic, I love that. <laughs> Rather than our proclivity for causal reasoning and our tool use capacities making us special as a species, I think this is where the action is. I think our willingness to reproduce the behavior of others that we could never explain in terms of physical causality is highly effective, as a highly effective mechanism for cultural transmission, good for lots of different aspects of cultural learning. And uh, that's what I want to talk to you about today. So the opacity of rituals, at least from a, a physical causal perspective, I think is incredibly important and adaptive. Because what causal opacity does, um, well, I guess rituals are, are, are many things. I, my interpretation of ritual is very cognitive psychological, which I think is in many ways not at all incompatible with the treatment of ritual we've already heard about. It's, it's crucially opaque from the perspective of physical causality. And it's also socially stipulated. So people like Humphrey and Laidlaw would say, in ritual, you are not the author of your own acts. Right? So the opacity of ritual makes them, um, it, it protects against individual level innovation. 
So with ritual, there's no better way to, um, to produce ritual than exactly the way that other people do it. And the social stipulation and opacity allow for very high fidelity transmission of, cult of um, cultural conventions or rituals over generations, right? Where you get the very same ceremonies um, being uh, passed on generation after generation with very, very high levels of fidelity. And keep in mind, I mean, this is a, these are just pictures of, uh, actually from Samoa of auto preparation, which I work in, uh, in Vanuatu and Melanesia, and they drink a very similar beverage. And there's an enormous amount of ritual and ceremony surrounding the preparation of this beverage. Some aspects of the preparation have an instrumental role, but much of it is, is nothing to do with physical causality. Um, is highly routine, highly ritualized, and our, um, our willingness to engage in this high fidelity imitation of conventions allows for this um, cultural transmission. So despite evidence that children are indeed instrumental imitators, we know children can use imitation to acquire instrumental skills. As I mentioned, physical causality, or reasoning about physical causality, is just not relevant to a large amount of imitative behavior that we engage in. So we know children use imitation to learn rituals <coughs> as well. Uh, I started studying how children learn rituals a couple of years ago and was astounded to find that despite the fact that there are literally thousands of studies of children's imitation, almost none of it is on understanding um, or imitating conventional behavior. It's almost always um, imitating instrumental skills. As I mentioned, I'm thinking about rituals in terms of causally opaque, conventional, socially stipulated practices. And I hypothesize that affiliation with social groups is what's motivating imitative fidelity. That in fact, imitative fidelity is an affiliative uh, behavior. And as I mentioned, rituals are peculiar in that um, according to the way I'm defining rituals, you don't create your own rituals. I mean, I, th I thought the, the distinction that um, Brad, that you were making between habit and ritual is a really, really helpful one. Clearly, this is spectrum level behavior. But the rituals that I'm focusing on here from a cognitive psychological perspective are on the kind of collective end of that spectrum. So when my students would say, oh, I have, I, you know, I have a ritual. This would be a personal ritual, maybe slash habit. Um, the collective rituals that I'm talking about are, again, socially stipulated and don't belong to the individual, which um, very conveniently promotes things like, or is conducive to, agency reversal, where the ritual kind of does you. You don't do it. So what I'm proposing is that cultural learning in humans may involve two stances, or what I call interpretive modes. So one possibility is that when you approach a new action or new behavior you want to understand or acquire, you could you could um, rationalize that the actions are based on potentially knowable physical causations. You could interpret a behavior as some kind of an instrumental skill of some sort. Or you could interpret perhaps the very same behavior as a ritual, where the rationale for actions are based on some kind of conventional prescription and are really not about physical causation at all. Now, crucially, I don't view these things as mutually exclusive or discrete necessarily at all but often a mixture of both. So I mean, keep in mind a lot of the behavior that we observe in the world 
we need contextual information and social cues to determine whether it's a ritual or an instrumental skill. It's not obvious. So one example would be um, if I lit a candle, right? Is that an instrumental behavior? Do I have an instrumental goal for that? Or is that a convention? How would you know? I could be lighting the candle because the, the power is out in the other half of the building and I need to illuminate the darkness. Right? I could be lighting the, the, the candle to mourn my dead ancestors. Right? It's hard to know. You need contextual information. So you've got to have a very flexible cognitive system in order to be able to uh, interpret all of this information. And what I'm attempting to do in this line of research is figure out how children come to be able to do this so incredibly well. And from a kind of bigger picture perspective, I think this line of research is relevant to how we use both innovation as a species, that is, innovation and imitation flexibly as dual engines of cultural learning. Because as humans, we need both. We need the cultural conventions for a lot of reasons that I'm going to talk about next in terms of social cohesion and identity and um, affiliation <coughs> with kin. We also need innovation to drive um, our um, use of tools and different technologies and things like that. So as humans, we're, we're great at both. And what I want to understand is how we develop these capacities um, so early on. So let's go back to this ritual instrumental distinction. If you interpret a behavior as instrumental, my prediction is that you would focus on the product, right? The end goal, the instrumental goal. And the process is only relevant to the extent that you achieve your goal. I would expect lower imitative fidelity if you interpret a behavior instrumentally and higher innovation. Now, if you interpret a behavior um, ritualistically, the process is what matters. Right? We've heard a little bit about that already today. This is why using a word like over-imitate to describe ritual uh, to me makes very little sense. You can't over-imitate a ritual. The better you reproduce a ritual, the better group member you are, right? The more proficient cultural learner you are, right? So that's not the right term to refer to um, ritual learning. I would expect higher imitative fidelity, right? And lower innovation. And I will note that in, uh, in some cases, especially for novice learners, if you are presented with a brand new instrumental skill, you don't know anything about the physical causality, it would make sense that you would start out with high imitative fidelity. So friends of mine in the engineering department that I'm doing some collaborative work with, uh, they actually saw me give a, a related talk and started to panic very deeply that, they were in, that all of their graduate students were in fact ritual learners. Um, and, in and in observing the, um, the demonstrations of these very, very technical skills, he found that his students would um, reproduce not just the relevant bits to accomplish the goal, but also some of his idiosyncratic tics in the process, right? So when you're a novice learner, it does make sense you would start out with a higher imitative fidelity. But what I would predict is that once you acquire mastery in an understanding of the physical, physical causal basis for the behavior, your imitative fidelity is going to, um, will, be, will decline, right, as you acquire an understanding of the physical causal basis for it. So, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the kind of information 
that children use to adjudicate between instrumental and conventional or ritual learning. So how, what kind of social information or contextual information matters? So I want to understand the, um, the process by which children decide, oh, this is a conventional behavior or an instrumental behavior or perhaps something somewhere in between. We've looked at a bunch of different cues thus far. Uh, one of the things we looked at is uh, features of the action sequence um, itself. So if the end and start date, of, start date, start state of an action sequence are, um, are equivalent, right? this might inhibit an inference about an instrumental goal. Right? There's no state change. We've investigated this. What I want to talk to you about today is the use of verbal language or verbal information to determine whether a behavior is instrumental or conventional, we're looking at consensus. The, um, the vast literature on imitation almost exclusively involves one experimenter modeling a behavior for one child. Which, fair enough, that is one way that we learn information. But a lot of our learning occurs in group settings with multiple models. So um, how you have thousands of studies with using a single model every single time is kind of beyond me, but um, I guess that's kind of a ritual practice. We want to look at multiple actors, and the assumption is the more actors you see reproducing the behavior, the more conventional it will be. We also looked at synchrony. So we assume that behavioral variation is associated with more of an instrumental interpretation, and that behavioral coordination or synchrony is associated with more of a conventional interpretation of behavior. I think the fact that synchrony is such a big part of ritual um, is probably not an accident. Right? Our cognitive systems probably had something to do with um, the perpetuation of this sort of behavior. So how do you prime this experimentally? How do you give this experimental traction? So I'll talk a little bit about how we did this with verbal cues and again, consensus and synchrony. Now, for the verbal cues, the idea is that instrumental language should prompt children to think about an instrumental goal for an action sequence. Conventional language should prompt more of a ritual goal. And I'll explain what I mean by that uh, next. I also want to look at age differences. So this is, these studies um, were conducted with children ranging in age from about three to six or so. So what we, the first step of this process is how do you, how do you create um, a ritual in a lab context um, and use, create something that young children could, um, could engage in. So I'll show you, this is our, uh, this is our novel ritual. Right? The goal of this is complete causal opacity. Right? There's, no, there's absolutely no reason from a physical causal rationale that you would need to do the behavior in this particular way. So keep in mind, children all saw this action sequence. And the only difference was, for half the kids, they heard, she puts it in the box first. The other half heard, she always does it that way. Like, very conventionalized language there. And then all we did, we handed them the same objects and said, now it's your turn. We didn't tell them to imitate. And then what we did is we coded their behavior for imitative fidelity. How close was it? How close did it align to what they saw? So pretty straightforward. Just to run through our predictions, in the instrumental condition, we're expecting lower, relatively lower imitative fidelity due to that instrumental language prime, which is simply she puts it in the box. 
And we expect the opposite for the ritual condition with relatively higher imitative fidelity due to that conventional language. So we're expecting relative differences. So let me show you. This is a little girl in the ritual condition. Um, but before I do that, I will show you what they saw. We incorporated some novel gesture in there as well. You'll note, crucially, the behavior is, is intentional. Right? Children don't reproduce behavior that seems accidental. Right? This model clearly commits to it. You'll note many things about this sequence are totally unnecessary. If her goal is to put it in the box, she said a lot of really unnecessary stuff there. Right? <laughs> and you know, even things like using that object to open that box, I can assure you that is not the most efficient way to open that box. You can just reach over there, grab it with your hand. So this, let me show you what children did before I show you the, all the quantitative stuff. She's actually quite shy. That's what that behavior is about. The gestures, she's very stealthy. Oh, she just snuck it in there. She does the, the um, box tilt. No instrumental reason to do that. Opens it with the object, puts it inside. And in case you're not all duly impressed, I would, um, if I had these objects here, I'm sure very few of you would do so well <laughs> in terms of imitative fidelity. All right, so here's a child in the instrumental condition. So she reproduces some of the behaviors, does a little tapping, jumps right to the box, you know, reasonably so, opens it with her hand, puts it inside. And then she does what I refer to in my lab as monkeying around. She explores novel affordances. Oh, there's a hole in these objects. Let me put, the, you know, put the, them over the peg. So she does a bit of that, which is what I would call sort of innovative behavior. And then as this clip goes on, what she ultimately does is she puts every single one of those objects in the box. Right? She generalizes the <laughs> instrumental goal. So what you have here, you look at this by age. Imitative fidelity in the ritual condition is higher than in the instrumental condition. And as I say, these fidelity summer imitation um, summary scores are just coding of the, um, the behavior that they saw modeled. So did they tap the objects in the same way, or the same, were they the same action object pairings, things like that? You find that this, these distinct behavioral profiles um, increase, or the difference is, um, is greater with age. Three-year-olds, we find fairly little difference. Some studies we find the predicted effect. Usually we find no effect, but by four years old, we've replicated this probably eight times, we find the, um, a dramatic difference in imitative fidelity based on their um, interpretation of the behavior. So here's some converging evidence for the, the idea that there are these different interpretive modes or stances. We know verbal cues differentially activate these stances. And again, my evidence for this is that there are differences in imitative fidelity higher so in the ritual condition. And again, there's an increase in these distinct <coughs> behavioral profiles with age. Now, what if, you do, uh, what if you demonstrate these behaviors with multiple actors? Does that matter? 
So let's look at consensus and behavioral synchrony. And again, we'll look at age effects. So it's really straightforward here. Here's our design. Here we have a single actor in succession. She, all she does is she demonstrates the same novel action sequence twice. Here, it's, the, the sequence is always the same. Right? So it's two different actors here. Right? That might matter. If you've got two people engaged in exactly the same behavior, that sort of smacks of conventionality, right? Synchronous, we have two actors engaged in the same behavior at the same time. Um, what's fascinating about this, watching this behavior, it's enormously compelling. Just watching two people do something in synchrony, it's attention grabbing, right? which is probably, again, not an accident. And then, in order to publish in peer-reviewed journals, we have the control to uh, control for the number of times they've seen the same um, action sequence. And if you're curious, these action sequences are not meant to be especially exciting. But it's just simply a peg-pushing task. Right? We have some irrelevant behaviors there, like tapping and things like that. Right? Very straightforward. All right, so in kids, in this instrumental single actor condition, what we're expecting is this is going to lead to the lowest imitative fidelity, the most instrumental interpretation, whereas that ritual synchrony condition would be associated with the highest imitative fidelity. And I will uh, point out, we also used, we crossed verbal language cues here as well as in the previous study. So here's what we find. Now, what I'm most interested in here is the fact that this bar right here, this is our single actor, that was the actor who did the same thing twice, with the instrumental language is associated with, by far, the lowest imitative fidelity. Um, I'll remind you that the, you know, the thousands of studies on imitation in early childhood, right, this is always the paradigm that they use. Right? It's always a single actor. Now look, you show children the very same sequence, identical action sequence, with two people in synchrony, with a ritual, with ritual language, there's a dramatic difference in imitative fidelity. So you find that you show two actors. I mean, the ritual interpretation or ritual language is already associated with the highest imitative fidelity. So we replicated that. But if you introduce synchrony in ritual, you get this bump. There's the experimental evidence I was talking about. In the instrumental language, you get this bump for two actors as well as synchrony, right? So it looks like both consensus and synchrony are cues to the conventionality of actions. So witnessing multiple actors and synchronous action increase imitative fidelity. We see the same increase in imitative fidelity with age. What I want to show you next is some cross-cultural work that we've done um, on using very similar experimental paradigms. Uh, I have a number of field sites around the world. My um, current primary field site is in Vanuatu, which is a Melanesian island chain. The reason that I select this particular field site is that, uh, thankfully, due to the lack of any lucrative, exploitable natural resources, the Western world has blessedly left these people alone for the most part. Um, so you don't have a market economy here. You don't have, or there's very, very little of it. Um, formal Western education hasn't been widely introduced. Um, the evangelical Christian missionaries have indeed landed and are marching their way across the island, so we're furiously doing as much field work as we can before they officially Christianize and educate the entire population. But what we, the reason that we wanted to study cultural learning here 
is that there's lots of reasons to think that the, the dyadic, highly scaffolded, high pedagogy way that weird populations, this Western industrialized, democratic, um, rich, etc., the way that um, these populations socialize their children is in fact something that's historically new, and that children in, um, uh, in, in, who are living in kind of ancestral ways of life, indigenous populations, are much more reliant on observational learning than this direct uh, pedagogy. So we wanted to, to do a lot of these studies in Vanuatu as well as in, um, in Austin, my other field site. Uh, just as a side note, as a side note, so when, during my first field visit to Vanuatu, I went with uh, one of my collaborators, uh, Harvey Whitehouse, who's the former chair of the anthropology department at, um, at Oxford. And because it's been many years since he's done field work, I think he feels a bit like an imposter. This happens to anthropologists if they haven't been in the field a long time. They start feeling like, I don't know, maybe I, I, I don't deserve my stripes anymore. So he was very um, excited to go into the field again. So he and I go to this you know, very, very remote corner of the world. He did his field work in uh, Papua New Guinea, which is ethnically, linguistically, culturally kind of similar to Vanuatu. And was very much ready to go. Immediately upon our arrival, we were separated because there's a lot, it's a patriarchal society, and the males and females have different work and different tasks, which is, is not a surprise. So I spent most of the field work working with the women, making thousands of these vegetable dumplings, uh, which involved pulverizing these root vegetables and packaging them and, and steaming them, basically working from dawn till dusk where Harvey spent most of his time with the men swimming in waterfalls making decisions. <laughs> so it was very... enjoyed the field work. Yeah. Drinking copious amounts of kava, oh. which uh, the women don't drink. And initially I felt a little disappointed about that. It's a hallucinogenic beverage, and I thought, wow, this is, you know, I think I missed the critical period of or drug use in, in graduate school. So I was getting, hoping to have an opportunity to try it out as a faculty member, which maybe is not the right time. Um, and anyway, so the women don't drink kava there, um, which as I say, I was initially disappointed by until I found out that the method of preparation for kava involves young boys pulverizing the root with their mouth and expectorating, spitting, into uh, a cup that is mixed with water uh, so you are effectively consuming large amounts of saliva from young boys. And I mentioned this to Harvey only after we had about 20 shells. Uh, well, he, he did tease me too much about making all those, um, all those dumplings. So anyway, what we're trying to figure out is whether there are cross-cultural differences in expectations for conformity. Right? That is going to have, of course, major implications for imitative fidelity. So we wanted to look at, um, look at this in two contexts with very different models of socialization and potential expectations for conformity. Again, you'll notice we use very similar prompts here. Here we used a novel necklace making task. And we did this because in Vanuatu, they make necklaces. It's, a, a, um, it's an activity that's generally familiar. And in this, um, in this study, these were all I created a video for your purposes, but these were all modeled live by local um, research assistants. Right, so there would be a causally irrelevant thing. 
You don't actually have to stretch a string to make a necklace. She's committed to it, right? You're tempted to laugh, but go into any church and think carefully about a lot of the minutiae of the ritual and look what I did. A lot of this seems less silly. Okay, so as I say, we did this in Vanuatu and in the US, and what we're expecting is very similar cross-culturally. Uh, we did assume that, or we did hypothesize initially that there might be overall higher imitative fidelity in, uh, in Vanuatu due to greater reliance on observational learning. And I'll show you what we found. Now this young man is uh, as a kid from Austin. And there's many reasons that I really like this clip, but um, I think I'll play it and then you'll see why. Okay. So this is a child in the ritual condition. more than being mocked by a five-year-old. He's probably six. Right. So the, um, the motivation to imitate with high fidelity is, is very strong indeed. Right. Here's a Nivon girl. carefully about which ones to pick out. Perfect imitative fidelity. So what we see here is in Vanuatu, we get the same, we replicate the same difference in imitative fidelity by, um, by condition or by prompt lower imitative fidelity in the, in the instrumental than the ritual condition. If we compare this to the US data, in the ritual condition with that conventional language, absolutely no difference whatsoever. Right? Uh, we do find in the, uh, in the <coughs> instrumental condition that the Nivon children imitate with higher fidelity than the, um, the American kids. So there's a bit of evidence for perhaps greater expectations for conformity in this population, but clearly they're using imitation flexibly based on their interpretation of the goal of the behavior. So overall imitative fidelity is comparable and children in both the US and Vanuatu imitate with high levels of fidelity in that ritual condition. Very near ceiling, in fact. So one of the things we've started to do, and I want to just give you a little peek of this, is look at um, instr instrumental and ritual learning in the context of parent-child dyads, which is quite a fun thing to do. So here we have it's that same necklace-making task that I just showed you. It's meant to be a, um, a familiar activity, and this is done with parent-child dyads. So yes, I do live in Austin, Texas. We need to put up instruments gratuitously everywhere. It's, it's very common in that population. <laughs> this is the, it's actually the Austin Children's Museum. Okay? This man here is a Dell engineer, computer engineer. 
right? The whole purpose of the Austin Children's Museum is to promote scientific thinking, the development of scientific thinking, which is why Dell spends a lot of money there. Now, I say that because what he encourages his child to do next, I think, is incredibly revealing. Here you go. Scientists of America, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> behavior you need to imitate with high levels of fidelity. So to redeem the engineers, I'm going to show you another Dell engineer in the instrumental condition. Okay. Now which, what do you want to put on the necklace? Okay, great. Now push up for so the, he does the same sort of scaffolding of the fine motor behavior, so you see that in both conditions. But it's very, there's a lot of personal agency What's language. What kind do you want to make? What necklace Just do you like to make? Do you want to pick something else to put on? Yeah. Here, there's you. Do you want to pick another piece to put on the necklace? What else do you want to put on there? So this parent has interpreted this behavior as a necklace making task, right? Feels no. Um, no need to reproduce exactly the, the necklace that had been modeled. And in fact, the video goes on to continue with the, um, the parent-child dyad reproducing multiple necklaces. So they made necklaces on both strings. They used all the beads. Um, they're interpreting the behavior instrumentally. So what you see here is when I, um, I say imitative fidelity, this is the parent's imitative fidelity. So this is what they're encouraging. So sure enough, in the instrumental condition, there's lower imitative fidelity than in the ritual conditions. This isn't just an artifact of what children do, but adults are sensitive to this as well. And this is the proportion of parents demonstrating or encouraging the action by condition. We get a lot more of that in the ritual condition. So you see these parallel and distinct behavioral profiles for ritual versus instrumental learning. Uh, you see cross-cultural similarities and differences. Parents and children are sensitive to cues to imitative fidelity. And what I want to mention last is the implications of learning cultural conventions for social group cognition. So heavily influenced um, by reading a lot of the uh, fascinating work in the anthropological literature on the function of ritual um, as a mechanism for group cohesion. And amazingly, despite the beautiful ethnographic work on this topic, there's extremely little experimental evidence for the role of ritual in social group cohesion. Um, and that's one of the things that I wanted to try to study. So one of the ways that um, I wanted to get some evidence that ritual learning or interpreting behaviors as rituals, uh, what the function of that is, 
is this idea that's based on a drive to affiliate with, um, with social groups. Um, so the first study, what I wanted to look at is ostracism, right? So one way to prime reaffiliation behavior is to use ostracism as a tool. And then we also, inter we also studied rituals in the context of social groups to look at measures of social group cohesion um, and other measures of social group cognition. So there's lots of, of social psychological evidence for an ostracism detection species, a species system. So for a social species, being highly attuned um, and alert to the threat of ostracism is incredibly adaptive. Young children are very, very sensitive to this. And we know that ostracism increases re-inclusion behavior uh, or imitative fidelity. I'm assuming imitative fidelity is a re-inclusion behavior. Um, so we want to understand is, is the drive to affiliate greater after priming ostracism? And I will note there's a very large literature on behavioral mimicry uh, that in um, the adult social psych literature, we know that participants like confederates who subtly mimic their behavior, right? So these signals to behavioral coordination um, increase preference for others. So it's a bit of conversion evidence um, from another domain. So we want to know, is the ritual stance motivated by a desire to affiliate with in-group members? Right? So we know they imitate with higher fidelity in the ritual condition, but is that really affiliated behavior? And this is our uh, first step in trying to understand that. So this is a study with five and six-year-olds. We had four conditions. Half were ostracism, half were inclusion. And we manipulated the in-group, out-group experience. So um, some of you might be familiar with the cyberball paradigm. This has been widely used in the adult literature to study the experience of ostracism. Um, I will note that I'm incredibly proud that we tapped the cyberball code and we're able to put these little shirts on mm -hmm. the avatars, which allowed us to prime the social group experience, which for anyone who knows a lot about code, I shouldn't be bragging about that because it's really trivially easy, but it did take <laughs> us a while to figure it out. So what we did is we assigned children to a novel group, yellow group, green group. And we told them, this is you. And these are players, these are group members, these are kids in other rooms. So we had them play with in-group members or out-group members, and then we crossed the experience of ostracism or inclusion. So inclusion, it's just a simple ball-tossing game. So for the inclusion conditions, they, the, the child, it was just a button press, got, was passed the ball the same number of times the other players were passed the ball. The ostracism conditions started out that way, but then, unfortunately, after about the third try, or the third trial, the child stopped getting the ball. So they were no longer past the ball. And I actually picked this task because I thought it would be innocuous. It's just a simple ball tossing game. Um, within two trials of not being included, children were already very uncomfortable. Right? So we're keenly alert to the threat of ostracism. Then after playing this game, we demoed a novel action sequence like I've showed you before. And then we gave the children the objects for an imitation task. So here's, we, we crossed whether the confederate was in the yellow group or the in versus the out group. And all we did was model a novel task. We were expecting that in-group ostracism is going to activate the ritual. Uh, with a combination of ritual stance activation is going to result in the highest imitative fidelity. And that is, in fact, exactly what we found. So we found an effect of ostracism, children that had been ostracized imitated with the highest fidelity overall, 
than children who'd been included. But crucially, the in-group experience was important for ostracism. Right? So if you think about this, if you're, if you're ostracized or not included by your out-group, well, they're your out-group. Right? Maybe they don't like you just for that reason. Right? It's very easy to shrug that off and not personalize that. But if your in-group ostracizes you, these are people you need to affiliate with. Right? So the psychological fallout is quite different. We also coded for um, the emotional experience of kids. We found no difference in, um, in frustration uh, for in-group and out-group ostracism. Uh, in, in both cases, the child wanted to play the game and they weren't able to do it and they were moderately frustrated. We found much greater anxiety for in-group ostracism than for out-group ostracism. Right? So it parallels this, um, this idea that ostracism is promoted um, or that, that ostracism differentially affects in versus out-group dynamics. So we know ostracism increases imitative fidelity and that in-group membership matters. So what we want to know now is whether um, the experience of participating in a ritual increases measures of group cohesion and group preference. So we want to examine the impact of participating in novel rituals on in-group preferences and out-group biases. So what we did, we used this novel social group paradigm, which has used, been used widely in both the adult and the child literature. We assigned children to yellow and green groups, and then they either participated in a ritual manipulation or actually one of a series of control conditions. So we had children, we segregated them by color group, and we had them in the ritual condition, there was a group leader who modeled a scripted, stereotypical ritual necklace-making sequence. In the control manipulation, we had, this, we had the same group leaders. They played this, children played the same stimuli, but it wasn't scripted and ritualized in the same way. Now, the controls are crucial here because we want to make sure, what I want to really know is whether participating in a ritual has an additive effect on social group cohesion and group preference above and beyond just being in a, so, in a group. We already know that being in a group increases your preference for that group. Right? It's very easy to activate in-group versus out-group dynamics. We really want to know, is ritual special? Does it have an additive effect? So um, in the ritual manipulation, you know, we said things like, we're going to play with these beads in a special way, the way the green group does it. In the control manipulation, we're going to play with these beads, see I'm making a necklace. So they're doing roughly similar activities with exactly the same stimuli. We had a variety of different post-test measures. One was a group fusion measure. So we told the child, this is you, this is your group. Which of these best represents how you feel about you in relation to your group for both their in-group and their out-group? We also had expectations for group inclusion. We got a group of green or yellow kids playing a game never played before. Uh, do you think these kids would let you join in right, for both your in and your out group? We had affiliation measures. We asked children, if, um, if you came back next summer, would you still want to be in the yellow group, or would you want to change your group? Um, we asked if they wanted to keep the cool little colored visors of their group. We asked if, they, um, if there was a new student that was coming into the class, if they would recommend they join the yellow group or the green group. And then we asked about special privileges for group members. Did members of their in-group deserve special privileges? So what we, we found is that fusion to in-group members is higher in the ritual condition. 
So we, when we, um, we analyzed the data, we found that children felt more fused with their group if they were in the ritual condition uh, than in that control condition. These are relative differences. Uh, we actually found no, group, no effect in, um, in group fusion for the outgroup, at least by condition. So a lot of the anthropological theories um, about ritual have to do with ritual increasing social group cohesion within an in-group, in-group preference, um, but also maybe amplifying out-group bias um, or out-group prejudice. And in this study, we don't find a lot of effects of that. So we find that participating in a ritual makes you feel more fused with a group, but doesn't seem to have a differential effect um, for out-group prejudice above and beyond just being in a novel social group. So we found higher expectations for inclusion by new members of their in-group in the ritual versus the control condition. Again, there, were no, there was no effect on expectation for inclusion by out-group. We also found that preference for retained group membership was higher in the ritual to control. They were more likely to say they wanted to retain those identity markers. Their preferences for their in-group were higher in ritual than control. And their expectations for privilege of group members was higher in ritual than control. So all of this is convergent support for the idea that rituals have, a, have an in-group specific effect on social group cohesion and social group preference. So what we think here is that rituals increase fusion and preference for in-groups. Again, it's in-groups only. We didn't find any effect for um, out-group or ritual amplifying out-group prejudice. This exceeds the effect of just group membership alone. Right? So that's an important point. And supports the idea that rituals are motivated by a drive to affiliate. So just to wrap up, um, the broader point here is that children are not indiscriminate imitators. That from very, very, very early in life, children are selective about what they imitate and to what degree. And these studies provide new insight into the kinds of information that children use to interpret a behavior more instrumentally versus more uh, ritualistically. Uh, as I mentioned, I think there's two systems, at least two systems, for cultural learning in humans, one that affords more ritualistic learning and one that affords more instrumental learning. These map fairly nicely on the need to imitate with high fidelity versus innovate. So just in conclusion, efficient social learning requires using imitation and innovation flexibly. We've got evidence for these instrumental and ritual stances, um, information about how children adjudicate between different kinds of learning. We have evidence from both verbal and nonverbal cues, right? things like consensus and synchrony and language. We've got evidence for some cross-cultural continuity. Um, so children in, in Vanuatu and in the United States imitate with higher fidelity in that ritual condition, as well as some variation. We've got evidence for par uh, parental scaffolding of instrumental and conventional or ritual learning. So this isn't just a feature of um, uh, cognition in early childhood, but parents actually support this. There's some, at least preliminary, evidence that imitative fidelity is driven by affiliation, at least in the context of ritual learning. We know the drive <coughs> to affiliate increases after ostracism. Um, and, uh, you know, crucially, the um, evidence for imitative fidelity being a, uh, a marker of, of affiliation um, comes from the study 
of ostracism, right? So if you are ostracized from your in-group, the first thing you want to do um, is reaffiliate when possible, and um, behavioral mimicry or imitation, high-fidelity imitation is one way to do that. You know, rituals enhance in-group preferences, so children who perform rituals show the greatest in-group bias, above and beyond just being in a social group. And just as a, a closing remark, I think that despite the very large interest in the field of developmental psychology um, in early scientific learning and early scientific reasoning, the primary objective of childhood is actually social learning and becoming competent members of cultural communities. And I think that the results provide, um, the data that I've presented so far, provide some insight into how children use imitation and innovation to become members of cultural communities, to acquire the skills of those communities, to learn to innovate and build upon the technology of those communities, and also to affiliate with um, members of their social groups, which for humans is um, vitally important. Just wanted to acknowledge my wonderful graduate students and postdocs, and thank you all for your attention. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.